You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Scott Mason. He is principal at Scott Mason LLC. He's a consultant. He's a mentor. He's also a public speaker. We're going to talk to him about what businesses can do, what leaders can do to help build resiliency, build focus, really build a kind of a bulletproof organization that's going to help them survive all sorts of challenges. We're obviously in the midst of a huge global pandemic one right now, but you know the things that are going to help them overcome the challenges and obstacles they will face, because while we don't know which obstacles they will be. We're 100% sure and certain there will be obstacles. So it's something that every business leader, you know, whether you're a couple hundred thousand in revenue or a couple hundred million in revenue, you are going to need to figure out how to deal with. So uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I'm always, I always enjoy talking about the elements of leadership, the principles of leadership. uh, And this is certainly one of them. So with that, Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. So let's do a little bit of background, just to kind of understand kind of your history, kind of the things you've learned, then we can talk about the work that you do. What was the story? Because I know you've had a lot of different experiences that have got to where you are today. Give us, give us the rundown. Yeah, absolutely. I was born in London, England, adopted by a factory worker and a civil servant who raised me in Kansas, of all places. <laughs> I got out at a very young age, um, relatively speaking, yeah. and came here to New York City for law school. And I, I fell bet. in love with the city the minute I set foot on it and have not left since. Yeah. I started my practice working for the city of New York in the Corporation mm-hmm. Counsel's Office, which is a law firm that serves it, but quickly moved into various managerial and executive positions positions in a series of agencies of the city of New York. Um, At the very end of it, for instance, I was second in command of the city's agency that oversees all of the tribunal litigation throughout the city of New York. It was an exciting, large organization doing important work, and there was nothing like working for the city of New York, particularly during the Bloomberg years, which was the bulk of my time, where we were changing the future. We were looking at governance in brand new ways and bringing a business sensibility into a system that historically been overly bureaucratic, stodgy, and somewhat sclerotic, frankly. After that, I went into the nonprofit sector, worked for a large nonprofit that was transitioning from a grassroots organization into an organization that really was using business thinking and business modeling to provide top-level services. It's the nation's largest provider of domestic violence shelter services. It also runs homeless shelters. Its name is Urban Resource Institute, and it is an amazing amazing company doing amazing work. But during that time on the side, I was working with small businesses to provide them with organizational strategy, management, leadership support. And during that time, I was training at a martial arts school with a man who owned a silkscreen printing company. Mm -hmm. And he would headlock me 
every day. He was so much better than me. (laughs) And one day after an hour of him beating me up, we had been working on projects for about three years at that point. I said, you know, maybe we should consider engaging more deeply because I was having so much fun working with this company. It was a cool space. There was opportunity I saw in that particular business area for growth and for a new fresh vision for what a company doing that could be. His response was, dude, I'm ready to get into bed now. And so (laughs) within a month, we had signed our paperwork and we teamed up to make that organization named the Brooklyn Press into something special. And during the time that I was there, it started out just him, me, and a part-time intern working out of a small factory in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Within a few years, we had tripled our staff size. Our revenue had gone up 300 plus percent. We had opened a location in another city. Our clients went from the local taqueria and the the dojo down the street that was kind enough to Mm -hmm. (laughs) trust us with their shirts to companies like Whole Foods and Nike, New Balance. And, and, you know, we did even did a project for Quentin Tarantino's production company. So it was an amazing transition and amazing experience. But after a while, our visions for the company shifted dramatically. It it often happens. Yeah. And sometimes you don't know it until you're in it. Yeah. And so with that, um, I was better positioned to move on to something new before I knew it. Frankly, I had clients approaching me saying, oh, you're not with the Brooklyn Press anymore? Will you help us grow and scale just like you did there? And so I had a roster of clients before I even had a bank account or a corporate entity. And that's how Scott Mason LLC was born. Well, that's the way you want it. (laughs) Totally. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So tell me, I'm curious, because you've had some intriguing experience on the government side, on the nonprofit side, on the for-profit kind of commercial side. What, What do you, like just comparing and contrasting those, is there anything that sticks out at you as being kind of, you know, either differences in the way they operate or kind of strategies or culture? I mean, are they more similar or more different and how so? I would say that they are all different, although they share some elements in that they all require a high level of leadership and emotional intelligence in order to succeed as well as drive. Now, I will say in government, a lot of times the prime motivators of the staff there were either extreme levels of security and risk aversion or to be blunt, power. And so the dynamics that you were dealing with in order to grow and scale either your organization or your own projects within that organization very much involved understanding those dynamics and working through them, as well as collaborating across a huge number of internal and external stakeholders, not the least of which might include people like deputy mayors or massive industry groups. So in terms of developing a collaborative approach, dealing with human capital in a way that reflects the fact that there was basically nothing you could ever do to get rid of anyone Mm -hmm. forced one to really hone in and sharpen those interpersonal skills that have been invaluable down the pike. Nonprofit, it's interesting. There was a stereotype I think it still exists. Mm-hmm. Nonprofits as being largely these do-good organizations, usually headed by hippie-ish women that are out there, you know, <laughs> sprinkling fairy dust in the world no, and just, trying I to make laugh it. because I see it. Yeah, you can see, you can imagine her right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is not the way the nonprofit world right now works. After a series of scandals, bringing business-like governance 
into nonprofits has been both a competitive necessity for nonprofits of any scale. Funders demand it. The government itself demands it if the government is a funder. And then there have been a host of regulations that have come down to make sure that that happens. In fact, the main difference between nonprofit governance and management is simply that nonprofits are not allowed to pay their employees, including their executives, more than certain prevailing rates, which is not necessarily the truth in the for-profit setting. But otherwise, nonprofit at the scale of a company that I was at is pretty much the same as a for-profit enterprise. I'll also be blunt, a small scaling enterprise was far and away the most dynamic, Mm -hmm. the most able to quickly respond to changes in the marketplace or to mistakes. Also, the place where risk was most at play. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a cliche to say, but it's a reality to experience. If you and those early true believers in your company's missions are not prepared to really be out on a limb, to fall face first, to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, laugh, and then move on, then it's really not right for them. But for others, like myself, and the initial staff that we had, you can really thrive. It's the adventure of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's the space where I feel best. Yeah, it's funny. One person's adventure is another person's nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because looking back on government, I regularly get asked, oh, would you ever go back and do other government-style work? Uh The answer is no, because to me, giving up the adventure would be part of giving up my personal identity and who I am and who I enjoy being. And so, you know, all of these things come with both costs and benefits, depending on yeah. who we are. Yeah, I always say that. Uh, starting and leading an early stage company, you have to at some level be delusional, right? Because the, <laughs> the risk, the risk, what you have to put into it, what you have to go through, the challenges you have to overcome, that if, if you really knew everything up front and were super rational about everything, you would never do it because it, it's hard and it can be really defeating at times. So I get the whole, you got to love the adventure. It's got to be something that really kind of thrills you and drives you because there's going to be a lot of it. One way or another. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, when we talk about failure and we talk about resilience, I mean, do you do you see differences between kind of the the natural kind of failure you need to go through to learn and evolve and, you know, you're going to experiment and not all experiments are going to work, you know, that there's kind of productive failure and then kind of unproductive failure or things that, hey, this is actually, I guess, do you see differences there and, and how and why? Because I always, I guess, this whole, well, we should fail frequently kind of conversation, I think can go either way. And I certainly have guests that have have been really like, hey, let's you know fail fast. And we have other guests that are like, it's stupid to fail. <laughs> right? so, so I'm kind of curious where you land on the spectrum or what you're kind of, you know, how you kind of categorize those things and kind of guide people in that process. What a fascinating and nuanced question, I've got to say, because in my experience, the thinking is exactly as you describe, either fail all the time and embrace it, yeah. or it's the worst thing in the world. One of the things that I find to be unusually helpful that comes from my own background, particularly Mm -hmm. the legal background combined with government experience, is an understanding that risk isn't an all-or-nothing proposition. It's something to be managed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a mayor that I was working for might have wanted to do, and Rudolph Giuliani in particular, his administration was this way, may have wanted to do something that was radical. Mm -hmm. And you would have 
people in the agencies or the attorneys that would ultimately end up defending any policies that were legally challenged put their hands up in the air and all but turn into Linda Blair and the Exorcist with the thought that someone actually might challenge it and it might go through and hit litigation. To me, that was an extreme. We cannot necessarily assess risk only with the worst possible outcome in mind and excluding any other possibility. So catastrophism as approach to risk management or understanding failure is, in my opinion, extraordinarily unproductive. And it leads to inability to move forward and leads to inability to distinguish a business or to explore new marketplaces or new products or new designs or any sort of new thinking. And it kills the spirit of the principles of those enterprises. That being said, there is something to be admired Mm -hmm. about the ability to look at a risk, identify it for what it is, a risk, and say, okay, I don't need to necessarily hug the wall for the rest of my life. But that doesn't mean I leave the parachute in the closet. Go up to the 50th gonna, floor. I'm going to do it blindfolded on fire. <laughs> exactly. And then just jump. And yeah. so a clear assessment of the risk by analyzing all of the different points that might impact the action's ability to succeed or not so that the maximum amount of preparation for the downside of that risk occurs, then accepting the fact that if it nonetheless fails, moving on when it does, and placing the appropriate financial, emotional, human capital resources into the risk once the degree of the risk has been assessed is the approach that I feel is most appropriate. At the end of the day, when I'm advising a business, and I'm sure you're the same way too, it's up to us to understand the entire continuum within which that business operates. All of the different points that can impact the success of any initiative or the underlying enterprise itself. And then including things like what its finances are, what its credit looks like, who is actually willing to lend or invest in the company, and then acting accordingly. So anytime something like risk is put into dichotomous frameworks, Mm -hmm. I'm suspicious. The real world is nuanced. You know that it's subtle. There's shades of gray, and we have to assess it accordingly. Yeah. I'm curious. uh, Maybe we'll geek out a little bit here on risk. One thing I find, I certainly when I'm working with CEOs, with leaders of businesses, is the sort of the temporal aspect of risk, where it's risk looks very different looking forward than looking backwards. And I think it's easy for people to get kind of caught in two, I think, false modes or false conclusions looking backwards when they engaged in something that had a non-trivial risk element and, and they had a good outcome. And they look back on that and say, oh, well, see, we made the right decision. When in fact, it still may have been the wrong decision. They just got lucky (laughs) And, and vice versa. I think a lot of times leaders get into a situation where they had a bad outcome and they look back on the risk assessment that they did and they see... They assume because they had a bad outcome, well, they made a bad decision. And in fact, they actually made a good decision. They just, they rolled snake eyes, right? Like just, they had a bad outcome. How do you, I guess, either kind of, you know, anecdotally or more kind of strategically, how do you, how have you seen this kind of play out and how do you help 
business leaders with that kind of post-event assessment of outcome and make sure that we're not going to fall into the trap of, oh, we're, we're going to take luck as being <laughs> evidence of our intelligence or, or vice versa, a downside as being, oh, well, we must not be good at this when in fact you may have just been lucky or you may just got a bad outcome, but you should still do the same thing again next time. Yeah. I mean, what amazing points. And in a way, as usual, the complexity and the multi-layered nature of what you just asked points in a number of different directions. I'll answer it two ways. First of all, anytime a decision is made, and particularly if there's a negative outcome, but even if there's a positive outcome, I recommend that at certain points after the rollout of the initiative or Mm -hmm. after the action is taken, that some sort of post-mortem occurs, some sort of analysis. It's cold-hearted, objective, and pulled away from emotion. We need to learn if it was a success exactly why it was a success and be honest and objective about it because it may not be because we were geniuses. It may, for instance, be that our competitors simply didn't think of that thing first Mm -hmm. or that a competitor folded due to reasons that had nothing to do with us um, and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time or or any other number of things that might have contributed to the success of that initiative. Obviously, if the initiative failed, we also need to take a cold-hearted, non-judgmental approach to why it failed. And it may be exactly as you were talking about, simply that luck wasn't there. All of our projections, as well-intentioned and well-researched as they might have been, were wrong. Or simply that despite people telling us that this would be what they wanted, they were wrong. (laughs) Or we were sampling the wrong people, or whatever your resources allowed you to do. So that's number one. Really looking at it post facto, we obviously should be doing the appropriate analysis up front and not just jumping into it because we think it's cool, which I've had experience taking that approach before. It has not always been that successful, just put it that way. Then what you're talking about also, though, goes as to leadership. My belief is, and I know I'm not alone in this respect, the success or failure long-term of any enterprise, leaving aside any individual initiative or any individual strategy or even any individual action, is tied to the fundamental nature of the leadership itself. In order to successfully be sustainable, and it's a lot of why my company's motto is grow, scale, sustain, the leadership has to be fundamentally sustainable, not just visionary in the moment, not just creating excitement about tomorrow, but able and willing to create something that can really outlast that founder or the owner that's in place at that very moment. And I mention all of that to say that humility is a fundamental part of sustainable leadership. It can be very easy, exactly like you said, to say, oh, I'm a genius. I thought of this I was the first to market, and its success merely ratifies every ego message that I personally feel about myself. Oh, and you sycophants, you happen to be right about me too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's ultimately cult of personality style leadership. It's not true service-oriented leadership. When I talk to anyone that I work with, the leadership emphasis that I try and bring to the table is one that pulls back from emotion, including ego, and also puts the client or the customer first. Because the client or the customer, the ultimate in-person buying your product or service, (laughs) is the ultimate ego check. If we're able to check that ego internally, be realistic about it, pull back before the client or customer chooses to do so with their wallet 
we're much better positioned to succeed. But if we do fail, we're much better positioned to recover. The other downside of taking too much ego credit for success is that the same personality type can take it too hard if there's a, they're a failure or if the initiative is a failure. And sometimes taking things hyper-personally or taking it as a complete ego wipe, if something you've invested your heart, soul, and a lot of capital into occurs, doesn't necessarily mean that you're a failure or that you're an idiot or that you don't know what you're doing. It just means that for whatever reason, that didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that whole effectively being able to review, reflect, retrospect on the things that led up to an event, the event, the the things that happened post-event, and really learn from them at a deep level is a super powerful skill for a leader. Yeah. And I don't think people appreciate that enough. And it's the hardest one, and it's the one yeah. that requires the most discipline. In a way, I say that I learned more from leaderships via the martial arts than anything else, simply because in the martial arts, the discipline that's required to learn these techniques, which yeah. someone like me is not good at, but also the complete accountability that failure imposes on you and the public nature of that is excellent preparation for leadership. If you get tapped out, if you are overpowered or mm-hmm. um, otherwise failing during a match or during a practice, there's no one to blame except yourself. All right. So we're going to go into another angle that I talk about a lot, or I think is is really important. And I I certainly talk about with the people that I work with, which is this, this idea of radical personal accountability, which which you just, I think, and it's, and it's, and it's subtle. And I, and I always have to be careful and I want to, you know, people listening to this, be careful about how you take this, but it's, if you can really kind of look at every outcome and, and really ask the question is how, how am I responsible? How am I accountable for this situation? It creates, well, it can be seen as a lot of pressure because you're kind of taking responsibility for absolutely everything. It also is incredibly powerful, powerful and empowering because you now have the ability to start doing things differently. And, and too often I find that leaders or, you know, situations where someone is, oh, well, you know, this happened and that happened and those are outside of my control. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things outside of your control, but they're outside of your control. So at some level, unless you're going to use them as well, what could I do differently to anticipate them, to respond to them differently? At the end, it's all about what do you want to do? And you have to kind of take this accountability approach. I'm curious how this has played out for you or how you, know, how you kind of use this accountability, but also not let it become a, you know, well, if I'm responsible for everything, then I must suck because <laughs> not everything goes very well. I mean, I, like, how do you balance that with, yeah. with yourself and with folks? Fascinating question. It's interesting because during my time with the city, under the many of the particular leaders that I that I worked for. The culture was actually the opposite of radical accountability. It was radical finger pointing. And so I look back with some tragedy upon the initiatives and the work environment and the general organizational setups and outcomes that were there because they fail to fully meet potential due to the lack of safety that folks had in holding themselves radically accountable. And in fact, the idea of holding oneself accountable as opposed to CYAing everywhere, Mm -hmm. honestly, really didn't occur to me in the work sphere until much later. Now, when I started with my business partner at the Brooklyn Press, he actually was the first one to use that word radical accountability with me. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, Mm -hmm. loved it immediately. And it's something that we both worked very hard to make ourselves adept at and to hold each other to. There is real power there and there's real strength, but there also has to be an understanding about what accountability is. In government, 
at least for the bosses I worked for, accountability was equivalent to punishment. Mm. I actually, even at that stage, sort of culpability. Exactly. Even at that stage, I personally felt accountability was taking ownership over your mistake and then doing your best to make sure that you didn't replicate it. And actually, I had a very severe argument with a boss of mine that wanted me to punish the head of IT Mm -hmm. for one of the agencies that I worked for who had made a purchasing mistake. I said, you know, he's taken ownership of this. He's going to put in steps to make sure that this particular mistake never happens again. I'm satisfied. We can't undo the past. She told me, if you are not willing to hold him accountable, then I'm holding you accountable and you will be punished for this. So there was a conflation of punishment and accountability then, right Mm -hmm. then and there, even though I personally never truly accepted that conflation. Mm -hmm. Once you move away from punishment, as a as a as sort of the paradigm that you're operating in and really view it i believe as an opportunity to purely look at the mistake and do what you can to rectify it it is truly empowering understanding that to make mistakes are human and we can undo the past mm-hmm. and making a mistake doesn't mean that we suck it merely means that we're human we made a mistake as leaders nothing is trouble me more than hearing, I expect perfection, or at the level you're at, mistakes are not an option. Mm -hmm. I can understand it to some extent, for instance, if you're talking about pushing the nuclear button and millions Mm -hmm. are going to die. But if you're talking about, for instance, printing t-shirts or a fitness class or a, a training that your organization may be giving to an organization, all of these things are remediable and Mm -hmm. should be perceived accordingly. So the pathway out of assuming that the mere action of making a mistake is somehow evidence that you are an utter irredeemable failure is to me paved by understanding and embracing message that as leaders, we are human. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier, humility as a core leadership characteristic, because admitting that we're human, that's humbling. I don't like it all the time. Most visionary leaders don't because we see our visions as so much bigger than life. But it is the reality. That's all we are. Yeah. Well, I'll even take it a step farther and kind of connect maybe some of the things you were talking about before is if you're in a high growth company and you need to be on that adventure, the fact is you have to take a bunch of risks and, and hopefully most of them are calculated, but you know, calculated risks are going to end up in failure. And if you start conflating a, a quote unquote technical failure, you know, an experiment that we ran and it concluded as a failure. So that's our feedback and we got a data and a mistake in terms of, oh, well, we, we, we took an unknown, uncalculated risk or executed on it poorly in such a way that we didn't manage the risk appropriately. I think a lot of what happens, or, or I see this certainly culturally inside companies where they want to be all like, hey, we want to experiment. We want to be on an adventure. We want to fail fast. We want to fail forward, all these things. But then they have this punitive culture. Like that doesn't work, right? You can't run a business, you can't run a company, you can't create a company that on one hand, you want everyone to kind of try things and experiment and push the envelope and create new opportunities. On the other hand, be punishing people for making mistakes because like, it's going to happen. Those are incongruous. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, one of the things I learned working for a company, the nonprofit that provided domestic violence shelter services is that abuse includes overpunishment or reacting out of proportion to the quote-unquote crime that was committed. And the reason why that is so pernicious is because 
it does exactly what you're talking about. It creates a culture of fear where people will not take risks. It also undermines you as a leader because they see you as hypocritical or they see you as only the negative ogre that's going to get them in trouble somehow and not someone that inspires them to open their minds, unlock their potential, and really shoot for the stars. Punishment as a remedy for problems or a punitive attitude can make us feel powerful. It can give a, if you're a guy, a testosterone rush, mm-hmm. or if you're, a, you know, if you're not a man, then maybe it gives some other sort of rush, but it definitely has a, it can definitely feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. It also can send a message that no one will ever forget, but consequences, particularly the secret hidden consequences and untapped potential in risks not taken, in truths not told, in ideas remaining locked away forever is incalculable. And I know that having been on the other end of overly punitive environments, there are great ideas that I had. I just wouldn't say them. I didn't want to get in trouble, you know, or I didn't want to just be laughed out of the room or grilled, you know, so harshly and with such ridicule that I I felt like I was, you know, an insect under a fly swatter. That being said, that goes as to self-discipline. Punishment is easier as a leader to have as a culture because it doesn't require patience. It doesn't require not only having empathy, but exercising empathy. It doesn't require holding your breath, counting to 10 when that failure has happened and you see the walls about to cave in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't require the development of bodybuilder style muscles relating to resilience and relating to starting over again and smiling even when things are bad. So the hard work related to preventing and escaping from a punitive corporate atmosphere is one that can be very hard for a lot of people to take because it's so much work and it's soft. Yeah. It does, it's not like oh, it's on hard. paper. Yeah. You can't spreadsheet it. Yeah. It's interesting. I would even go so far as to say that I think the some, some of the better leaders I have worked with have set up kind of expectations and culture and process such that when a failure happens, they have to talk their employees down from the ledge. Yeah. <laughs> the employees end up being, you know, beat themselves up too much. Like they're so focused on the radical personal accountability that they're, that the risk is that they actually internalize it. And yeah. the leader is there to help, you know, bring them down from that saying, hey, look, this is part of the process. You, you know, we just need to focus on the learning. Like, what do you carry forward? How do you make sure you look at this objectively? Like they're the ones that are kind of trying to make this kind of a more rational process rather than the ones that are trying to amp up the emotions and trying to amp up the pressure and, you know, coming down hard with the hammer kind of thing. And I, and I think that's a, a testament for having set up the, the culture, hiring the right people, setting the expectations, kind of building those muscles for them independently. So they can go through that process themselves and they don't need that external kind of pressure to kind of evoke that. They, they take it very personally. And I think that's, um, you know, I, I just find that, that that is a markedly different kind of situation than a lot of the other companies that I see. Oh, yeah. And I think being disciplined and vocal about your position as a leader and then yeah. sticking by it is absolutely critical to make what you're talking about anything other than words. You know, it's funny, both at the Brooklyn Press and actually one job in particular I had with the government, I worked for the city's homeless services department, which as you can imagine was an area where making decisions could lead to extremely consequential mistakes. And, you know, in both places, I had the good fortune to have direct reports who had the exact sort of personality type that you're talking about. Irrespective of the finger pointing culture, they still held themselves accountable for their work. 
sometimes they both would either make mistakes or they would come to me with ideas that I frankly felt were cockamamie. But that didn't mean I was right. And that did not mean that I did not and should not and would not for as long as I knew them thank them for coming with the idea up with the idea yeah. and bringing it to me because sometimes the cockamamie ideas are genius yeah. sometimes they force you to think in different sorts of ways the other thing i love to do and i would actually say to my staff everywhere i've worked i'm the only boss you're ever going to have that will give you permission and tell you exactly how to manipulate me <laughs> and I would say to them, you know what, sometimes I know I have a big personality, I'm loud, and I'm opinionated, I'll, you'll tell me something and I'll say, no, 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 and get into this, you're like shooting it down sort of mode. Don't take it personally, hold on 24 to 48 hours, then walk back in with the exact same proposal and repeat it to me. And I bet the second time I hear it, I'll be more open. And it's funny, two or three times people said, you know, you told us to do this. We didn't yeah. believe you, but we tried you anyway. And it was right. And 90% yeah. of the times, actually, I went along with them because thinking about it, pulling myself away from my initial defensiveness or my reactiveness, and then having them say, you told me to do this, Scott, also kind of magic words to shut me mm -hmm. up, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gave me the space to be able to really hear it. And from their perspective, if I bought into it, I would lead the charge on what they wanted to do. Then we could share in the success yeah. together. But then also they didn't have me. They had no fear at all of me coming back and blaming them, which I always tried not to do. But still, I had bought in. Mm -hmm. And that's huge as well. So yeah. I love what you're saying. And I think that, again, it goes to creating that culture, but being conscious of our actions, our mind state, our uh, mindset and our feeling states when we're leaders, which is hard. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, no, no one, no one said it was easy. <laughs> yeah. If, if anyone got into this because they thought it was going to be easy, yeah. then that's probably, you know, mistake number one. But, <laughs> yeah. No, I think it, it's fascinating conversation. I mean, I, I appreciate the work that you do and then kind of the focus that you have and, and really helping leaders and companies kind of sort through these things. Cause I uh, like, obviously we're going through huge amounts of challenge right now. And, yeah. you know, those that are, you know, have done the work, have built up that muscle, have uh, really developed that perspective, you know, are going to, it's not easy for anyone, but I think they're going to be in the best, you know, have the best chances of recovery and pivoting and figuring out the new opportunities, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, those that it's hard, right? It's going to be a struggle. You know, they're going to see less opportunity. They're going to be more kind of stuck in, in situations. Oh. Uh, I think it's a really important conversation to have with folks. Yeah, Bruce, it's so true. And I just want to say what you're pointing to is it's common, although not as common as it should be, yeah. for leaders to invest in their understanding of the business's organizational development in strategic terms. But it can be easy for us to forget that the importance of strategy applies to our personal lives as well. And becoming a leader is, in my opinion, every bit as much of a long-term strategy that, like strategic plans, <laughs> needs periodic refreshing and updating and pivoting and yeah. needs to be a live plan. Um, but it is nevertheless a strategy, not something to be taken lightly or with any less seriousness than the plan that's on the paper that we show everyone at those senior team meetings every week. Yeah, no, exactly. Scott, that has been a pleasure. If people want to find more about you, find out more about the work that you do, what's the best place to get that information? www dot scott mason llc dot com that's s-c-o-t-t-m-a-s-o-n 
com and um, shoot me over an email through that and I'd love to talk and, and hear your story and learn all about you. That's great. I will um, make sure that the link's in the show notes here uh, so people can click and get that. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I, lo- I love these conversations around leadership. I love, you know, kind of the nuances that we've been talking about. I think it really, it's what makes the difference in so many cases. Yeah. So I really appreciate your time today. It was incredible. Actually, I really want to thank you. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.